I wish, I wish I could tell you where to open your Bible and uh, stick your thumb, but I cannot. In fact, I'm going to turn to so many verses and read so many verses that maybe, maybe you shouldn't open your Bible at all. That seems horrible to say, doesn't it? Horrible to say. Now let's make a short prayer together, and then uh, I'll give you this sermon. But I'll tell you, I'm not going to tell you a funny story. I don't have time for that. Father, we've gathered here today to worship you, and we've tried to sing these songs of worship to you. And it's so wonderful to meditate upon the cross upon which the Prince of Glory died for such unlovely and unworthy people as we. And Father, as I take this sermon in hand, I commit it to your spirit. And Lord, I offer it to you as my act of worship. And Father, I pray that these, my friends and brothers and sisters, will hear the message, Lord, and respond to it as their act of worship on this glorious day. Amen. I want to bring you a sermon this morning entitled, When He Was on the Cross, We Were on His Mind. This is Communion Sunday, and next Sunday is Easter. So today, we'll remember the Lord's death at the end of the service. And next Sunday, we'll be celebrating His resurrection from the dead. Now, last week in Ephesians, I mentioned the predestinating purpose of God in salvation. And I've said that before, and I've mentioned this before too, is that I, am a, I hold a particular theological perspective called Calvinism. I'm a Calvinist. And I love those precious truths. I love them so much that I really, I love them so much that it would be very easy, easy for me to spend the rest of my life preaching through the five points just over and over and over and over and over again because they are such beautiful, wonderful truths of Scripture from my perspective. But I don't think we need to bang that drum every week, do you? <laughs> but I do think some of the implications of it are worth thinking about. And so, my friends, I want you to think with me through this sermon. Before the world was created, the Father, Son, and Spirit made some decisions and some choices. And one of those decisions was to create everything that is. Our world, galaxy, and universe were all created for the pleasure of God. Listen to Revelation 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things... And by your will they existed and were created. So the reason that we exist on the planet today is because it pleased God to do it. And it's important to know that he created everything that is and mankind along with it with full full knowledge of every future event, both good and bad future events. He still created the world that we know. And it pleased him to create a realm where everything within this world is connected and and interdependent upon each other. God's glorious creation is a thing so magnificent that it has hidden realities. And these hidden realities have taken centuries to unfold, understand, and utilize. But with every passing decade, man discovers more about God's fabulous creation. Now the crown jewel of God's creation are the things that he made last, man and woman. That's the crown jewel of creation, men and women, 
Jesus Christ came and died for the souls and the sins of men and women and boys and girls. That's the crown jewel of creation. It is to that crown jewel that God gave dominion over the earth. We have control over the planet, and we do with the planet as we see fit. We make, we build, we tear down, we destroy. In Oklahoma, there's a range of mountains called the the Wichita Mountains. And at the very end of those mountains, part of that is a federal preserve. Now, they say it's the most visited federal preserve in America, believe it or not. When you think about the other federal preserves, you think, well, maybe not Yellowstone, but they say that that one's the one. But at the very tip of it, there are these granite and limestone mountains at the very end of it. And they belong to private citizens. And over the years, those mountains have been disappearing because they sell them to rock quarries, construction companies, and they just chip down those mountains until they're gone. Think of it. Mankind can destroy a whole mountain? Yes, he can. If you go out to West Virginia and see some of the coal mining areas and see what they did, strip mining, they just take down a mountain. Mankind does whatever he wants to do. I read in the news maybe last week that President Biden has reauthorized, or not President Biden, but the, uh, I guess it would be him technically, is that in the Gulf of Mexico, they auctioned off oil reserves in the Gulf of Mexico, which they're out in the Gulf of Mexico, there are oil drilling platforms many, that sit many hundreds of feet above the surface of the seafloor, and they drill down into the seafloor and get the oil that's below the ocean. Now, my friends, think about that. Living on it. Whoever got the idea to put a platform out there in the Gulf of Mexico? And then the idea of transporting an oil platform to the Gulf and putting it down out there. Sometimes those things are one, two, and 300 miles offshore. It's incredible to think what man has done. God said to Adam and Eve, have dominion over the earth. And boy, howdy, we have been dominating the earth. God has given us this. But before Adam and Eve were formed, before the world was made, God set forth a plan of redemption. And we know this to be true because the Bible mentions things that were planned before creation. This is Matthew 13, 35. A prophecy, that it might be fulfilled which is spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. There are things that have been kept secret, but God is un- 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 unfolding them, revealing them to us. Matthew 25, 34, speaking of the final judgment, Jesus says, Then the king shall say unto them at his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. 1 Peter 1, 20. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Speaking of Jesus Christ, that he was ordained to be the sin bearer, that he was ordained, chosen, predestined to be the one who would pay the sin debt of all who believe on him. He was chosen for that job before the world was made. In Revelation 13, 
8 and Revelation 17, 8, both saying the same thing about Jesus, that he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, that Jesus Christ was the chosen sin bearer before the world was made. Now that has important theological implications because when God decided that Jesus would be the one who would bear the sin, it was as good as already done. And we know that God acted like it had already been done, even though it wasn't really fulfilled yet, because Old Testament believers, they died and did not go to perdition or to judgment or to hell. They died and went into rest and peace because their sins were paid for by Jesus. Because when God says a thing is, it is, even though it isn't yet. <laughs> because if God says something is going to happen out there in the future... Is it going to happen? Of course it's going to happen. So if he says Jesus is this lamb slain, he's the one who will bear the sin, and he said it before creation was made, nothing's going to stop it. Remember that great passage in Acts where Peter says that Jesus, through the determinate counsel of God, the preordaining wisdom of God, the preordaining choice of God, He delivered Christ up to his captors. Remember what the Jewish people did? What did the Jewish people want to do with Jesus? Did they want to kill him? Well, after they wanted to make him something else. What did they want to make Jesus? They wanted to make him king. They wanted to make him ruler. They wanted to make him master. But they didn't, and they couldn't, because Jesus didn't come to be king. He came to be a lamb. He came to be a sin bearer. He came to be an offering. He came to be a savior. Now, my friends, Jesus is going to come and be a king in the future. That's a coming. And the day will come when Jesus does return and set up his glorious kingdom upon this earth. And every person who's been born again will be in that kingdom. Every person who has not been born again will be outside that kingdom, excluded for all eternity. Now, these passages, we learn That before the world was made, the Father chose the Son to do something for him on the earth. The Father chose the Son to die and to rise from the dead, thereby crushing sin's power. And when Jesus traveled upon the earth, healing and preaching, he told his disciples he was going to die and rise from the dead. And he says, I have come to do my Father's will. I have come to carry out the mission of God. Now this plan of redemption, it only exists by the grace of God. And what I mean by that is that God was under no obligation to make mankind in the beginning, nor was he under obligation to make mankind the object of his love. God doesn't love you because he's gotta. He loves you because he wants to. But God did that very thing. He graciously has done this. Listen to what some 17th century British Baptist wrote about this, this plan of redemption. Here's what they said. I wish wish you could listen to this carefully. The distance, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life. The distance is so great between God and man, that there is no way that reasonable creatures who understand that distance and know they're separated from God, the distance is so great that they could never 
bridge the gap. How far away is the moon from us? A few million miles, I don't know. I don't know how far the moon is away from us. However far the way the moon is, though, I mean, we know how far it is. We know, we know where it's located at. You, I mean, but how do we get there? You got to get there on a spaceship. And you got to go to the moon. But, you know, you know I'm, I'm not really, a, I'm not really <laughs> to quote Forrest Gump, I am not a smart man. <laughs> but traveling through space is incredible. Now, they're talking about putting people on Mars. This is an idea they have, is putting settlements on Mars. In order to do that, basically, if you go, you're never coming back. If you've seen some of these, some of these space shows, like maybe you've seen Alien, the movies, and you see those people getting put into some kind of a deep sleep state so they can travel through space, spending years traveling through space. Theoretically, they talk about doing these things. But my friend, there is no way you could ever come to God. The distance is so great, so I'm trying to illustrate. But here's what the London Baptist said. They could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he had been pleased to express by a covenant that God, beholding us in our sinfulness, we are not able to come to him. But my friends, God has been able to come to us. My mother and dad would sing this little song, when I could not come, To where he was, he came to me. You see, Jesus Christ is our Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is the Son of God. He is the creating God who has come down to this world to die on the cross to pay the sin debt of sinners because of the love of his Father. But what caused God to do this? What could cause God to conceive this plan of redemption? It's called the covenant of redemption. What could cause him to do this before creation? Now, it is right here that theologians differ. And I have no doubt that people in this room differ about what I'm about to say. Now, some say that God looked forward through time and saw what was going to happen, and he responded to what he saw that humanity would do. Others say God knew what humanity would do in the future, but not because he could see beforehand or know before, but because he had decreed, purposed, planned, and predestined what man would do. These are the two basic views. Now, there are four views about the foreknowledge of God. I hate to be academic, but you could just bear with me for two paragraphs. That part will be over. But don't tune out, all right? Don't tune out because it's important. There are four views about the foreknowledge of God. Four views. How many views? Four. four views. Well done. The first one is called Calvinism. The second one is called Arminianism. The third one is called Molinism. And the fourth one is called Open Theism. All of these views are an attempt to understand what the Bible says about God's predestinating will, its relation to human free will, and God's control over everything. Because all those perspectives, all four of those perspectives, all include all three of those things. 
They, there are ways of thinking about how these things work out. Now, I'm going to give you the definitions, and then I'm just going to try to make haste while the sun shines. Number one, Calvinism says God has predestined everything. Although what the everything means, even within Calvinism, is warmly debated. Calvinism basically summed up as God has predestined everything. Number two, Arminianism says God has responded to everything before it happened because of foreknowledge. Three, Molinism. Molinism has, has three sub-elements I'm not going to talk about. But Molinism says this. Molinism, Molinism, it's M-O-L-I-N-I-S-M, Molinism, seeks to maintain a strong view of God's sovereignty over creation while at the same time preserving the belief that human beings have self-determined free will or libertarian free will. The, third, the fourth is called open theism, which is the belief that God does not exercise meticulous control of the universe, but leaves it open for humans to make significant choices that impact their relationships with God and with others. These are the four views. Calvinism, Arminianism, Molinism, and open theism. Now, I figure that in this room, there are people who have never heard of those terms and don't care a lick about it. If that's you, say amen. (laughs) And there may be people who know them and have a definite opinion about them. Now, I bring up these views because I want you to know that very smart people have been thinking about the pre-creation plan of God for saving sinners and doing so for a long time. I want you to know that people are thinking about this. The pre-creation plan of God for saving sinners. People think about it. And they are forced to think about it. Not just because they had pizza when they shouldn't have. Or because they had jalapenos in their quiche. Now, if you, if you make quiche this week for the supper, please, let's not have 37 quiches with jalapenos. <laughs> People have spent time thinking about this. Because the Bible causes us to think about it. The Calvinist, the Arminian, the Molinist, and the open theist, they all are working from the same text of Scripture, and they're all trying to figure out how it it works. They're trying to figure out what it means. Now, we don't always like to think about these kind of things because of the implications of predestination and the existence of evil. But it is good to think about hard stuff. And it's good to test these things to see if our conclusions are biblical. Being a Christian eventually at some point requires Christians to think, not just feel. Now all Christians over time develop their own composite theology. A little of this and a little of that. But every Christian, every Christian must submit their theological ideals to the lordship of Christ and his word. This is why I am a very unusual person. Because I, I like systems, because they just work. But Scripture often causes me to say, this system stinks. <laughs> so you kind of become a hybrid of people. I was talking to the pastor at the Covenant Church this week, and he, he was asking me to do part of the service at the end, and I said, sure, I'll do it. And he said, he said here's what I want you to do. And I said, you know, I actually, I actually have that already written down. Because that's 
part of what I use for our communion service. I said, which is an adaptation from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. And he said, what? What meanest this? Thou art a Baptist. Yet you do condescend to use the Book of Common Prayer. And I said, yeah. He says, thou art an unusual Baptist. (laughs) And that is true. But I think that I like systems. But we have to submit our systems and our ideals to what Scripture says. And sometimes you have to say, I don't really like what Scripture says, but I'm going to accept it. Yesterday, I was, Valerie asked me to help her. Valerie's completing her degree, um, teaching degree, and she asked me yesterday if I would clean the bathroom. And every once in a while, I clean the bathroom, and sometimes when I clean it, it winds up in a remodel. <laughs> so I was cleaning the bathroom, and I was thinking about this sermon. And I was thinking about realities that make us uncomfortable. And the reality that I don't like to think about the most is the reality of eternal conscious torment. A.K.L. dying without Christ and going to hell. I don't like to think about that. It's, it's something that I wish were not true. I, I wish in some ways that universalism was true, is that everybody will wind up in heaven. Because the reality of eternal conscious torment in a place called hell is just horrible. Nevertheless, Scripture is plain. The Greek words that say, that mean everlasting life are the same Greek terms that talk about everlasting torment. Aeonios, krima, and aeonios, zoe. Aeonios, zoe, is eternal life. Aeonios creme is eternal condemnation. There you go. I, and based on Luke 16, it looks like the eternal conscious torment of people who go to hell is really bad. Now, if I didn't personally know anybody who was going to go to hell, it wouldn't bother me too bad. It wouldn't bother me. But, because everybody I know is going to wind up either in heaven or in hell, it does bother me. So what do I do? Adopt a new theological position that says there ain't no hell? Or hell is just, you know, living in Louisiana? Is that what you do? No, you have to just accept what Scripture says. That's what Scripture says. So you have to submit your feelings and emotions and all these things to what Scripture says. Now, every Christian has their own composite theology. Now, some of us Christians, we think that we have everything figured out. And we need to recognize that every Christian that we know, including ourselves, is on a spiritual journey, and that what you believe today will probably change a little bit as time goes by. And it will be changed for the better, if you let it be changed by the Bible. Now, I want to say this very plainly. 
is that even if you never open a Bible and never wrestle with a theological viewpoint, you can still go to heaven because we're not saved by knowledge. We are not saved by theological, biblical knowledge. We are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. When you get to heaven, when you get to the pearly gates to go into the heavenly realm, there's not going to be a theological test. There's not going to be a blue book that says, write everything you know about soteriology, write everything you know about eschatology, write everything you know about bibliology, and all that kind of stuff. There's no stinking test. The only test is, where is your faith? And if your faith is in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you're going to go right in. But if your faith is anywhere else, that door is barred to you for all time. You're saved by faith, not by knowledge. Not by knowledge. However, learning what the Bible teaches will make you happier while you're here. Because you kind of know what's going on. But you don't have to know a ton of stuff to go to heaven. Now, let me tell you why the pre-creation redeeming plan of God should encourage you. All right? There's a song written about 40 years ago by two men... And it's called, When He Was on the Cross, I Was on His Mind. And this song has been a beloved Southern Gospel song for 40 years. And the song reminds us that Christ, while He was on the cross, was cognizant of the people for whom He was dying, both in His day and those in the future, even rotten little you. Listen to Romans 5.8. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, hear the words from that song, and I'm, I'm not going to sing it. And I know you're sad about that, but I'm not going to do it. This is verse 1. I'm not on an ego trip. I'm nothing on my own. Make mistakes, I often slip, just common flesh and bones. But I'll prove someday just why I'm of a special kind, for when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Verse 2, the look of love was on his face, thorns were on his head, blood was on his scarlet robe, stained a crimson red. Though his eyes were on the crowd, he looked ahead in time, and when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. For he knew me, yet he loved me. His glory makes the heavens shine, so unworthy of such mercy. Yet when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. What a wonderful song. Christian friends, Jesus Christ, he died long before you and I were born. And he died with full knowledge of our future sins and of our incalculable future sinful failures as Christians. And he still went to the cross for us to die as the substitute of his pre-loved and predestined people. And while we have failed over and over to live up to the name Christian, has that, been your, has that been your story? Have you ever failed to live up to the moniker, I am a Christian? Have you really? Well, buddy, Jesus has never failed to live up to his name, Savior. I drop the ball every cotton-picking day. But Jesus never does. He never's in the wrong spot. He never ceases to be the Savior. You are a bad Christian, but
but he is a magnificent Savior. A magnificent Savior. Listen to these words of the prayer of Jesus from John 17, just a, just a portion of it. After praying for the disciples and the apostles of his time and his day, Jesus said this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's you and me, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me and the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you, may have, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What affection of Christ! This is the last lengthy reading of Jesus in the New Testament. Charles Wesley expressed his wonder as he considered the love of God in the hymn, And Can It Be? And here's what he wrote. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued? And as he thinks about that, he just says, it's amazing love. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? What a wonderful thing. Now you may think, surely by now, God's gotten tired of my failures. By now, with all my unfaithfulness to his word, he must have started to rub my name out of the great book of life. Well, he hasn't. But I want you to know something. There are churches in this town that teach that very thing. There are churches in this city that say, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you could lose your salvation. There are churches in the city that teach that. Be aware of that. Not everybody's the same. Now, unlike the nation of Israel, our relationship with God is through the grace of Christ and not through law or legal obedience. Our standing with God is by grace, not works. Our peace with God is secured by mercy and not merit. And our eternal salvation rests alone in the nail-scarred mighty hands of Jesus. Your salvation is not dependent upon your feeble fingers. Our resurrection hope is guaranteed by the resurrection of Christ. And not soul sleep or a shallow grave. Now I've said a lot of stuff there, but here's some verses to back up my claim. Isaiah 49, 14-16. God's talking to Zion. Zion equals the Christian church, the people of God. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Hey, you ever feel that way? We just read it in Psalm 31 this morning. Sometimes we feel like God has forgotten us, but here's what God says. Listen to his response. The Lord replies, 
Can a woman forget her nursing child that she, should ha- that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Can a woman forget about her kid and quit loving her kid? Now, those of you who are wonderful, exquisite, divine, and lovely mothers, you wouldn't. But we live in a world that gives us ample evidence that some women do stop loving their kids. How do we know that? They do horrible things to them. They abandon them. For centuries in the Roman Empire, they practiced a, they, they observed a practice called uh, It was called exposure, where a woman would get sick of her kid, or the kid would be, it'd be obvious that the kid had mental deficiencies or physical deformities, and they weren't going to get any better, and they would take that kid, and they would lay it out in a public place overnight, and leave it to whoever would come by. If an animal came and got it, no big deal. If a slave trader came by and got it, no big deal. If a band of pedophiles came by and got it, no big deal. That's what women did. And so we know that it is possible for a woman to abandon the love of her own, to abandon her child and not have compassion on her own kid. We know it to be true from history and from our current world. The Lord says, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. Your walls are continually before me. My friends, it is no mistake that the risen Christ, his wounds in his hand and in his side are still evident. As an eternal testimony that he is the redeeming one, that he died for sinners on the cross. Remember Jesus when he came there to the resurrection? After the resurrection in John 20, Thomas said, I will not believe he's risen from the dead until what? I see the wound in the holes. And when Jesus appears, what does he say to Thomas? Hey, Thomas, reach hither thy finger and feel. Was he just faking around? Was he just fooling around? Were the wounds still there? Well, the wounds were still there. Engraven on his hands. John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. John 6, 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and that will raise him up at the last day. That's what God's Word says. Everybody who believes lives, and will live again. Now, my friends, I think those, verse, those verses are worthy of a hallelujah, don't you? Let's do it together. One, two, three. That means praise God for those things. You say, well, but what if I commit the worst sin ever? What if I'm really a rotten, stinking, no good, low-down Christian? 
What if I do the worst thing ever? Well, what exactly would be the greatest sin a Christian could commit? The greatest sin a Christian could commit, in my opinion, is the sin that Peter committed. Because there in Jesus Christ's darkest hour, he goes to where Jesus is being tried. He goes to where Jesus is being beaten and examined. And Peter is standing there by a fire. He has followed Christ because he's been following Christ for three years. And he follows Christ right into the lion's den. And there is Christ standing there. And there is Peter at a fire warming his hands. And a lady says to him, she says, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? Peter says, I am not. Another girl comes up and she says, hey, aren't you one of the guys who follow Jesus? He says, I am not. And then a third lady comes up to him and says, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? And he says, blankety, blank, blank, I do not know that man. He denies Jesus. He denies him. He says, I don't know him. And not just once But three times, my friends, that is the worst thing a person can do, is to deny Jesus Christ. How does Jesus feel about this? Listen to Mark 16, 1 through 7. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, they brought spices so they might go and anoint the dead body of Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had arisen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was a very large stone. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And they said, and he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Well, he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go and tell his disciples. And this messenger of the Lord only mentions one person by name, only one person by name. Go and tell the disciples, and guess who? Peter. There is Peter who betrayed the Lord. Peter who who abandoned Christ in his darkest hour. Peter who shut off his mouth and now is humbled. But Jesus says, you tell old Pete, I still want to see him. I still love him. I still care about him. He still matters to me. And my friends, it is going to be the apostle Peter who preaches that grand and glorious sermon on Pentecost that sees the conversion of 3,000 persons. Peter. Peter, the denier. Now, I'm here today to give you a special message from the Lord. And it's this. God still loves you, and he ain't going to stop. He's loved you from the foundation of the world, and he made this world so he could show his love for you in the death and resurrection of Jesus for your salvation. Now, you you may have made some bad choices that you'll have to live with. Sin has its baggage. But But a train load of stupidity on your part doesn't change your status with God if you believe the gospel. And when it comes time for you to catch the train to heaven, there ain't no baggage car. (laughs) There ain't no baggage car because you are headed to the celestial eternal realm. 
You are headed to rewards. You're headed to blessings. You're headed to rest. You're headed to plenty. That old life is gone. It's in the rearview mirror, and you'll never be consumed with it again. Now I want to talk to you just for a minute about this Christ who died for you and rose again. Just so you really feel the the weight of your importance to God. This is who Jesus was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That's a description of Jesus Christ in John 1, verses 1 to 3. Colossians 2, 9 says this, For in Him, that's Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped at. Jesus didn't have to work at being equal with God. He didn't have to grasp or reach up to be equal equal with God because Jesus was equal with God because Jesus was God. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death of the cross, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Now, if you want to Kind of a cross-reference to that just for fun. Isaiah 45.22 says this. Because that's what Paul is doing. He's quoting Isaiah 45.22. Turn to me. This is Jehovah speaking. Yahweh. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God. There is no other. By myself I have sworn. For my mouth has gone out in righteousness. A word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall swear allegiance. That is who went to the cross and died for you. The word that made the world. The word, the person who keeps everything going. By him, all things consist. That's who went to the cross and paid the sin debt for all who would believe in him. Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Romans says, if you want to be saved, you have to believe that. You have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You have to believe that. Romans also says that you have to believe that he rose from the dead. And Romans also says you have to believe in your heart. Sincere belief. Sometimes what we do is we have belief right here in our lips. It's just mouth. It's just, it's just all talk. Just so we fit in with our family, fit in with our friends. It's just superficial. Have you ever just said something to get out of a yucky situation? We don't just say something to get out of going to hell. For with the heart, man believeth unto salvation. And with the mouth, confession is made. It has to go from the inside to the outside. 
Now I can't see your heart. I can see your faces, and most of you kind of got a little grin. You seem a little bit happy, which is great. But what's going on down in there? Are you really a Christian? Have you really come to know Jesus Christ? Have you called upon him to be your Savior? Now, you may have walked in this room with no thought of ever doing that, but I want you to know something. If you will right now put your faith in Christ, if you will call upon him, if you believe he's the Son of God, if you believe he rose from the dead, God will save you. Romans 10, 13 says, For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you'll put your faith in Christ right now, he will save you. And my friends, if you'll put your faith in Christ tomorrow, he'll save you. Ten years from now, he'll save you. As long as you're on this side of the sod, wherever you're at, you call upon him, he'll save you. Now, if you've put your faith in him in the past... I want you to know that he has saved you and saves you still. Because Jesus said, I'm not going to lose any that the Father have given to me. And everybody who believes in Jesus was given to him long before the world was made. Now my friends, let's quote this great passage together. John 3, 16. Everybody know it? Let's quote it together real loud. I know there are probably some little translation differences, but I think we'll all get the main thing. It's the greatest text in the Bible, probably. Well, it's the second greatest text in the Bible because 2 Corinthians 5.21 is the greatest. That one says, He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. John 13 is no slouch. You ready? On the count of three. One, two, three. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What a great text. What a great text. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word and for these truths that are there. I pray, Lord, that every person here who is not a Christian will put their faith in Christ. And every person here who is a Christian We'll walk out of here just kind of floating on the air because they have put their faith in Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' precious and glorious name. Amen. Now is a time of our service where we're going to have communion together. And uh, Teresa and Mary are going to come and play us a little bit of music while we have a time of reflection because communion is a special time to remember the death of Christ and to recalibrate our lives. And sometimes we have to have a hard pause to think about him. There's so many distractions. So we need to think about Jesus and about his offering for us. Now, what I've just been preaching about is a spiritual reality that was real. Jesus really went to the cross. He really died. He really rose again. Now, on this particular Sunday, you're going to have the opportunity to take communion and to see a spiritual reality in physical, physical form. Because Jesus says in Matthew that his body, this bread we're going to eat, symbolizes his body, the body of a real person, a real man, a real Savior, was broken, and we live upon his body. And it's kind of a, a metaphor. We eat to live. We consume Christ. We need Christ to live. And then when we drink, we're drinking together, 
the symbolic substance. It's the blood of the new covenant. It took blood to wash away sins. As we drink this today, we're saying the blood of Christ has cleansed my sins. Now, eating and drinking this is not going to save you physically. If you eat and drink Christ spiritually through faith, he will save you. But this is a, this is a symbol. It's a symbol. And today we get to have the spiritual and the physical realities. I'm going to make a short prayer, and then they're going to play for us a little bit. Father, as we come now to the table, we pray that you would drive from our hearts and minds any distractions. Help us, Lord, to get our, our minds and hearts aimed at you. I pray these things in Jesus' precious name.